0: Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Last week, the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States released its initial findings after months of research and expert testimony. Two of the very distinguished scholars who testified before the commission join us on this week's episode to discuss the initial findings and potential reforms of the Supreme Court. Michael McConnell is the Richard and Francis Mallory professor and director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He previously served as a circuit judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Michael, it is wonderful to have you back on the show.
1: Always enjoy it.
0: And Jamal Green is Dwight, professor of law at Columbia Law School. He is the author of the new book, How Rights Went Wrong. Jamal, it is wonderful to have you back on the show as well.
2: Thank you, Jeffrey. Good to be here.
0: Let's jump into the question of court expansion. The commission concluded, as a legal matter, we conclude Congress has the power to structure the Supreme Court by expanding or contracting the number of justices. The prudential question is more difficult and the commissioners are divided on whether court expansion would be wise. Uh, Jamal Green, you testified before the commission. You argued that some form of court expansion might be advisable. Tell us about your testimony and what sort of court expansion you endorse. Sure, Uh, and uh, I I think it's fair to say that not only do I think some form
2: of court expansion would be advisable, but uh, but is I think urgent in some ways, uh, but uh, not really on the way in the ways in which that that motivated the commission, right? So the commission is created because of calls from people generally on the left for expanding the Supreme Court along partisan lines uh, to increase the number of Democratic appointees in response to a perception that the court is imbalanced in various ways and there are ways you could kind of spin the numbers so that that's certainly the case Um, the vast majority of recent appointees to the court have been republicans uh, even though democrats have been winning presidential elections uh and there's a perception that uh that the garland picks and the the, not the non-garland pick uh of neil gorsuch uh, and the pick of amy coney barrett uh, were pursued in very aggressive partisan ways. Uh, I tried to sidestep that insofar as I think this commission is most valuable uh, when we can talk about things that we can agree on. Uh, And of course, we don't agree that the court should be expanded, but what I tried to do in my testimony is show some um, reasons why we actually should agree that the court should be expanded in nonpartisan ways, uh, which is to say it should be bigger. There are ways that uh, one can achieve that without necessarily uh, giving more picks to presidents of any particular party. And the main reason why I say the court should be bigger, in addition to being um, term-limited and in adi- addition to not uh, uh, being picked in partisan ways, uh, is uh, that uh, the individual justices on the court uh, are wield too much power. Um, they are they have life tenure, they're uh, one of only nine, which is a very small number uh, globally. Uh, They choose their own cases, they can be picked through purely partisan uh, processes, uh, and those features in combination uh, are the sorts of things that one expects to see in uh, non-democratic societies, people wielding huge amounts of power for exceptionally long periods of time who are picked in partisan ways and then can kind of choose the ideology of their replacement. Um, That's uh, almost monarchical in ways that I think we should find disturbing, Uh, If you look around the world, the 30 biggest countries in the world, and the U.S. is a very large country, of course, the 30 biggest countries in the world, uh, none of them that has a court that handles both constitutional and non-constitutional cases has a court that uh, is not term-limited or limited limited by age, or has a court um, that has fewer than 11 members. Uh, And most courts are much bigger than that. Uh, They sit in panels, right, so that you don't have the same number, the same people sort of deciding the cases by themselves um, in their own idiosyncratic and personalized ways for decades at a time. Uh, And so that's what I tried to focus on in the testimony, is to try to offer some ways of mitigating that problem.
0: Thank you very much for explaining your proposal that the current Court of Appeals judges could rotate on and off the Supreme Court, that the Article 3 appellate bench, which is a 179 authorized position, would be expanded to equate with the formal size of the Supreme Court, uh, and that um, you'd enact via statute an appointment procedure that would designate which judges of the formally expanded Supreme Court exercise the power of the functional Supreme Court. Michael, you testified against court expansion. You said that any attempt to increase the size of the court would be widely and correctly perceived as partisan interference with judicial independence, and you opposed the House proposal to expand the size of the Supreme Court, although you did argued that in your personal opinion, judicial nominees of both parties should be given a prompt hearing and a vote. Tell us more about your testimony and why you think that court expansion would be inadvisable.
1: i happy to do that. I, I I do want to stress what Jamal said at the beginning. My criticisms are of the proposal that is Really, before the House, not just House of representatives, but before the country, about adding a few, you know, Biden appointees to the current Supreme Court. Jamal's proposal is an entirely different thing. Uh, I think I'm against it, but not because it's not because it's partisan. We should talk about the pros and cons of his his proposal. But I don't. But what I'm about to say really doesn't apply. Uh, in uh, in his case, um, the, the first of all, I do think that uh, that a nine uh, justice Supreme Court—it's been with us for 150 years. I think it's a good number. Uh, I have argued what 16 times before this court. I've served on a court that meets in three judge panels, and also occasionally on an unbank basis, uh, all 12 judges, and. I, I think that when you get much above nine, uh, that the collegiality breaks down, uh, oral argument becomes much more chaotic. I do not think that there's any, it, it, against, if, if we had like a non-political way of looking at all of this, I don't think anybody would be particularly plumping for a larger Supreme Court. Maybe Jamal's idea, which is much larger and has a, is really an entirely different idea. Uh, but, um, we wouldn't be just adding a few judges. There's no reason to add a few uh, justices uh, uh, to the court. It's it's purely uh, a, a political uh, thing. Now, many Democrats uh, believe that they would be justified because of how terrible it was uh, that uh, the Republicans did not uh, give um, uh, Judge Garland a hearing. I uh, I think people of both sides should be given a hearing. I think although it's, but it's perfectly clear that the Democrats would have done the same thing if the shoe had been on the other foot. They said as much when the shoe was was on the other foot and at the end of the uh, first Bush administration and and uh, uh, one of Obama's uh, White House counsel stated publicly afterwards that she would have recommended doing the same thing. So it, it's, uh, it's tit for tat but in a but in a way that would escalate um, much more seriously, because if the Democrats did this this time, uh, there'll be a time in the future when there's a Republican president and a Republican Congress, and so let's say the Democrats increase it to thirteen as the House suggests this time, the Republicans will you know increase it to fifteen or twenty one, and and we're off to the races, and basically I think. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this is this destroys uh, the independence of the Supreme Court. However problematic uh, uh, the Supreme Court may be, and we all have cases we look at and we scratch our heads and say that doesn't look like a non political decision to me. Uh, there is there, but however. How bad that may be, this proposal would make it much worse. I think basically we would be adopting a new form of constitutional government in which we have just another legislature and not anything that's recognizably a court.
0: Let's take one more beat on the question of court expansion. There's a sort of academic quality to this debate because it would be impossible in practice without uh, changing the filibuster, which isn't on the table um, at the moment. But uh, debates about the court's legitimacy may become quite heated this year in light of the cases that are on the docket. Jamal, you know, take us forward to next June and as debates about the court's legitimacy heat up, in light of all that you heard and read in terms of testimony before the commission about court expansion, are there any court expansion proposals, including your own, that you think might actually get some traction?
2: In sh- in short, no. Um, as uh, Michael says, the filibuster is in place, and so anyone who expects the, uh, the any traction on a court expansion proposal, which will be very controversial no matter what form it takes, uh, it sh- is. I think that's a, that's just a fantasy. Um, that's that's in part the reason why I think if this kind of commission has any value, it is in trying to. Um, lay the groundwork for some long-term uh, change, and I-, I think most valuably, long-term change that isn't um, driven by the particular partisan winds of the moment, but are things that people of good faith can um, discuss, debate, agree or disagree about, and that represent genuine uh, problems. Um, so, for example, the proposal that I have suggested in my testimony, which is is complex and is complex in part because um anything that changes the court in significant ways through statute sort of has to be kind of gimmicky because um, there are a bunch of um, appointments clause related and ten, ten term of office related um, constitutional barriers uh, and it's very hard to amend the constitution. Uh, but uh, I, but uh, but I, I I do think that there's a a lot to be said for it um, uh, and would be happy to. Direct people to read my testimony and um, and engage with uh, Michael's criticisms of it. Uh, but I I think you know the commission, and I I, I think that the commissioners are aware of this. Um, that the commission is best understood as a long term uh, project in trying to um, start a conversation uh, rather than uh, uh, push particular changes in the short term.
0: The commission did evaluate court expansion and all proposals uh, according to four values and principles. Uh, legitimacy. Would the reform enhance the court's legitimacy, independence, democracy, and efficacy and transparency? Michael, do you think the commission will contribute in any constructive way to the debate about court expansion? And as you look forward, you know, to the spring, is this debate just going to fizzle out and people will look to other reforms or, or might any of the expansion proposals have legs?
1: Well, I don't know. I'm not a politician, but, you know, I think it'll be very constructive because it's a wet blanket being thrown on this. I mean, there's a there was a lot of agitation uh, in the Democratic Party for this to be done. Uh, Candidate Biden, knowing that if he endorsed court packing, would lose a lot of votes because I think most Americans respond to this quite correctly as an assault on on a very important part of our constitutional republic so you know candidate biden is a smart guy and so he wasn't going to endorse this but he didn't want to kick of the progressive wing of his party in the teeth while when he needed their votes so so he said i'll appoint a, a bipartisan commission uh and it is a genuinely bipartisan commission i think people don't appreciate quite how it's about two-thirds democrats about one-third republican but a lot of very serious people uh, from both parties uh, on it uh and uh it's it's no surprise that they're not going to recommend court packing uh and uh, i think this helps this will help give president biden cover for not doing something that we know he knows it's a terrible idea because he said so in the past um, and, uh, and and that'll that that's uh, that's constructive. Now I there's another thing where I know we're about to uh, segue into uh, talking about term limits, where I think there is a bipartisan, uh, not majority, because most people haven't thought about it yet, but there's a potential for a bipartisan agreement about a term limit proposal, and I think the commission could be quite constructive if it. Um, gave publicity to that and also, you know, figured out what the most practical um, way is of accomplishing that.
0: Thank you so much for introducing that segue, because that's exactly what I'd like to ask you about. I'm thrilled that the National Constitution Center's Constitution Drafting Project was cited in your testimony, Michael, and in other testimony as well. Both of you served on the project. Michael, you were on Team Conservative and Jamal, you were on Team Progressive, and both of your teams endorse the possibility of 18-year term limits. We the People listeners, I'm thrilled to share that the Constitution drafting teams will be reconvening soon and will attempt to agree on language for a term limits proposal and on any other proposals that they can agree on. Maybe if we can get you guys together soon enough, this could guide the commission and the national debate. So, Jamal, please give us a preview of the specifics of the term limits proposals you think are most constructively on the table. You proposed a 16-year term limit in your testimony before the commission. Maybe we can start with you telling us which proposal you favor, and we'll see if Michael agrees. Well,
2: there are any number of different structures that a term limits proposal could take that that I would favor, and I think there are a number of important considerations. Uh, The most important uh, might be the regular, at least for me, the regularization of the process, <clears throat> which is to say that th- who sits on the court should not determine, be determined by the happenstance of retirements and deaths and strategic behavior on the part of the justices uh, themselves, uh, and you know, choosing to pick their own replacements more or less uh, in terms of ideology, which is which is a, a not a, a responsible way to run such an important institution. In my view. So, term limit proposals are designed both to depress the overall power of the court and the power of any individual justice, but also to um, regularize uh, the appointments process. The most popular proposal is one for 18-year term limits that um, would basically give each president uh, two picks on a regular cycle in each uh, presidential term. So, if you stayed with nine justices, then that sort of works out so that a president who served two terms would would appoint four members of the court. Um, In my own testimony, I propose uh, 16-year term limits, uh, which I don't have any special attachment to 16 years rather than uh, 18 years, other than one has to recognize that term limit proposals interact with how many justices are on the court, uh, and my own proposal would be for 16 justices, and so for various reasons, um, 16 years um, works out in terms of regularizing the, the picks, but but the numbers are sort of less important. One thing to note, two things to note, um, one is um, life tenure is extremely anomalous uh, globally. Uh, I'm, o- I'm only aware of, and I I. I uh, teach comparative constitutional law. I'm not aware of any uh, countries other than the U.S. and Iceland um, that have uh, high courts with uh, without either term limits or age limits. Um, so it's extremely unusual. Every state um, Supreme Court has a term or age limit other than uh, Rhode Island. Uh, and the other thing to say is 18 years, which is the most popular proposal, is, is actually quite long, Um Uh, globally. Um, So we have life tenure, which is, you know, much longer and in practice has been much longer than 18 years in recent decades. But those courts that have term limits uh, in major democracies around the world, uh, they tend to be shorter than 12 years um, uh, in in recognition that these are extremely powerful uh, positions. And in a democracy, it is anomalous for people to hold power of that kind for that uh, long, especially when they're not elected.
0: Michael, what do you think of Jamal's proposal? And then what do you think of the commission's uh, suggestion that the two best options for term limits are 18 years and 12-year terms uh, and the transition to 18-year term limits, according to the commission's summary, would involve the most senior justice retiring in the first year of the next presidential term, the next most senior justice would retire in year three, and so on. And assuming this is accomplished through constitutional amendment rather than statute, the commission doesn't foresee any significant impediments.
1: Uh, so I th- because I think nine just, I mean, Jamal is right, of course, that the number, uh, that the length of the terms is related to the size of the court. Uh, and I would just add, I, I agree with almost all of uh, Jamal's uh, rationales for this, but I would add, and I think he might well agree to, with this, is that one of the benefits of regularizing this so that every president would have, you know, two uh, uh, vacancies in a four-year term and it would be predictable and uh, uh, and even, I think uh, that this would help lower the temperature on each individual nomination because currently, um, the the happenstance of uh of you know when when the court flips and so forth is i think intensifies uh the bitterness and vitriol uh involved in the confirmation process because you always hear this will change the court for a generation right for a generation well you know if it's if you know you have new justices every two years that it never does by the way, change things for a generation that that's just, uh, rhetoric, but, uh, if it's every two years, uh, that rhetoric will be uh, subsided. I favor the eight year, uh, 18 year term so that the, you can keep the number of justices at nine. I also think that, uh, that that's probably long enough for most of them that, um, uh, that I uh, I'm I'm the oldest person on this call so maybe I can be forgiven to say that aging does affect people not just because you're older but because I think I think people in a sing, in a single position for a long period of time gets get stale but rigid is probably the better word than stale that I begin to think that judges and other people in other important positions when they've been there long enough they're not, they become impervious to counter arguments um, it becomes you know more like that you can you can you know mail it in uh, so i think i think 18 years is long enough i, I i'm open to the commission's suggestion about the most senior uh, justice being required to step down and so forth an alternative um, transition that i f- think I favor, I think is slightly better, uh, is to allow the current court to serve out the terms for which they were uh, appointed, uh, but have the new, the new justices take office as vacancies occur and their 18-year uh, terms be, uh, be counted Uh, according to uh, when when their name, so that they then serve for 18 years uh, beyond their uh, confirmations, Um, I think that that would be less disruptive than telling uh, Stephen Breyer that he is the one who has to uh, to step down. Uh, And I think it would work pretty well. And I do agree that it requires a constitutional amendment. There have been some creative attempts at arguments for how this could be done by statute but I don't think any of them hold water I think it does require an amendment and amendments don't are almost impossible uh, when they favor one party or the other the joy in this proposal is that I think both sides um, can get behind it because it really doesn't favor uh, one side or the other
0: Jamal listening to Michael and thinking about your deliberations when the Constitution drafting project, convenes, do you imagine the amendment most likely to get consensus will be pretty short, just a couple sentences, or will it have to address some of these technical questions about when the amendment takes effect, you know, when would the vacancy occur within presidential terms and, and so forth?
2: Well, I, I think that if you did it by constitutional amendment, you um, e- yeah i do think you'd want to address a couple of issues um one it, both in terms of transitions do you, do you apply it at all to sitting uh, justices there there's a there's a middle ground to between um the most senior justice steps down and uh and and just replacement of the retiring justices uh which is you keep them in place but you just start it at a certain time so that For a period of time, there's there are more than nine members of the court, and then it just goes back to nine um, when the uh, existing uh, members uh, leave the court. Uh, But but I do think addressing the transition issues is probably something that one would have to do. Um, The other issue that um, that I don't have particularly strong feelings about, but I think one would have to to address is is whether it only applied to the Supreme Court uh, or also applied to other federal judges. Uh, I, I think there. Are, I think the, the questions around what what would happen and the the mechanics even of of having term limits for other federal judicial positions, what that might mean for the politics of appointment and, and so forth. I think they haven't um, gotten as much discussion as as they should, um, and it, there there there, are, there is some awkwardness in the Supreme Court being limited, but not other federal courts uh, being limited. Uh, the the other thing I. I I would just say about this, and, and maybe we'll get to this, but I, I, I'm more persuaded, I think, than Michael is that there are um, ways of doing this, or at least it's reasonable to think that this could be done by by statute. Uh, I do think that the and that the argument that Article III's guarantee of a service during good behavior uh, means that you cannot have a term of years, um, I think that's a perfectly plausible, reasonable, um, even strong constitutional argument. But but I, I do think that there are some significant ambiguities around um, the ways in which the duties of a, a judge can be switched around, um, uh, and, and they, with that, without them losing their status as a Supreme Court justice or as an Article Three judge. And I think that um, senior senior judges and senior um, lower court judges and senior Supreme Court judges um, suggest that there is at least a possibility uh, that um, a term of years is not inconsistent with. Um, with losing Article protection. protections. I, I'd, I'd also mention recess appointments, which um, interestingly uh, are term-limited, um, but no one doubts that those people are, are Article
0: Three judges. Michael, anything final you want to say about the draft amendment, which I hope the teams may be able to agree upon uh, relatively soon? And then what do you think of the question of whether Congress might be able to impose term limits by statute. The commission uh, was divided on that question. And as Jamal said, there are a series of potential proposals and the one the commission's identified. First, Congress enacts a statute requiring justices to take senior status after 18 years of service. Second, uh, all justices continue to hear original jurisdiction cases, while only nine junior justices hear cases under the court's appellate jurisdiction. And third, Presidents only appoint sitting lower court judges as designated Supreme Court justices to avoid the constitutional objections of effectively removing Supreme Court justices after the expiration of their term. Do you think that any of those proposals might be able to be achieved by statute or not?
1: I I don't. Uh, good behavior means life tenure unless someone does something which is uh, an impeachable offense. Then, and, and I think. Telling them that they have to get off at a certain period of time is might be a good idea, but it's just not. It's not consistent with the term uh, a good behavior. And I don't think that the other two proposals, the other two proposals, especially the last one, um, ignore the fact that the Supreme Court is separately identified in the Constitution. So that telling a, a Supreme Court but pointing somebody to the Supreme Court and then telling them, well, what we really meant by that is uh, only half the jurisdiction or what we really meant by that is you'll spend a portion of your tenure on other courts uh, is not the same as putting them on the Supreme Court. I, 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 I think these, th- these proposals are well-meaning and clever, but I just don't think they work.
0: Well, the next big area that the court took up were questions involving the powers of the court and its role in the constitutional system, including jurisdiction stripping, uh, that is, uh, Congress removing certain categories of cases from the court's jurisdiction, voting rules about what kind of majorities the court would need to reach a decision, uh, standards of review, whether the court should be deferential to laws or not, And the possibility of congressional overrides, a proposal that was hot during the progressive era where Congress could override Supreme Court decisions by supermajorities. Jamal, uh, what did you think of those proposals and of the commission's consideration of them? Do any of them have legs? So I I think
2: as with uh, other uh, parts of the the discussion materials that the commission put out, I, I don't think any of these things is likely to happen. Um, and they're really sort of fodder for broader discussions about the role of the court. Uh, there are a number of proposals uh, that you name that I think are are, are potentially good ideas um, that you know, overturning a congressional statute should require a, a, a supermajority, for example. Um, uh, but uh, but I don't. I think there are constitutional, legitimate, quite serious constitutional. Uh, uh objections uh, to to congress interfering with um uh with how the court does its job um, I, I do think there's a lot congress can do to affect uh, the court's work but um, but once it gets into we just disagree with your uh, decisions or we don't like what you're doing in response to uh, or how you're exercising your judgment about what the constitution requires uh, i think that the, the, the separation of powers objections to that are are quite strong and I think uh, I think troubling uh, so my preference you and, and I'm one who thinks the Supreme Court exercises much more power within our democratic system than it should but I, I think the response to that is to is to uh, is to alter the the uh, s- size and and length of, of office of the justices rather than, um, directly uh, interfere with their, their substantive work.
0: The commission expressed similar skepticism about uh, many of the proposals to uh, change the court's role in the constitutional system. It was skeptical that jurisdiction script stripping could promote meaningful democratic accountability. It uh, said that c- although Congress might have some jurisdiction stripping power, it would likely trigger constitutional challenges, and it also raised questions about uh, requiring a deferential standard for the court to invalidate legislation um, as well as uh, congressional overrides. Michael, your thoughts about those proposals and whether any of them has legs?
1: So jurisdiction stripping is a particularly bad idea, and the reason is that Congress— Assuming Congress what the Constitution can be interpreted by its words to give Congress the power to uh, to eliminate Supreme Court jurisdiction, but that doesn't mean that it limits the application of the Constitution, and there are fifty state courts out there that have jurisdiction to decide federal constitutional Claims. And so if we eliminated Supreme Court jurisdiction and also lower federal courts, right? So uh you know, we eliminate Supreme Court jurisdiction over some what does what people what do they want? I don't know, campaign finance, what what I, I don't know what we guns, I don't know what it is, but um whatever it is that's eliminated, instead of having, you know, one Supreme Court, we're gonna have fifty state and and the, you know who knows 11 or 12 lower federal court decisions all going every which way and it's very hard for me to believe that that's going to be an improvement i don't see why anybody left or right would think that that's a better way to to run the system uh, take congressional override uh it, it this is this exists in canada uh it's i think a a it, it, and so it at least has some uh, possibility. I mean, some, you know, we can look to places and see how it works, but I think it has some technical problems uh, as well. So what is it that Congress overrides? Does it override the particular decision in the particular case? Uh, well, what about the next case, which is slightly different and, you know, involves this maybe the same underlying principle, but uh, uh, but not the the same case and and does it eliminate uh, what does it do for, for for the court exercising you know what we call constitutional avoidance where the court uh, interprets the statute to conform to its idea of the constitution without actually saying that it was unconstitutional? Does Congress override that and uh, and and it strikes me that the result of this is likely to be to create all kinds of confusion and arguing about a, a bunch of things other than the merits. And I, you know, however, again, however bad people think and uh, the court is. And, and in this country, we're sort of everybody thinks it's bad, but everybody thinks it's has a different list of what they think is bad. Right. We don't actually agree on which court, which decisions of the Supreme Court were overreaches. Uh, however bad that system is, I think these alternatives are worse.
0: Well, the final category of reforms the commission examined involved transparency, case selection and review. And I'm just going to put some of them on the table to get both of your reaction. There was a discussion of the shadow docket, which we had a very illuminating podcast on uh, recently. And the commission identified proposed solutions uh, such as transparency, the court providing articulate reasons for granting or denying emergency relief, Uh, precedential effect, emergency orders shouldn't be treated as binding precedent on lower federal courts, uh, applying existing norms of deference and standards of review, and legislating narrowly to avoid nationwide injunction. Uh, And they also took up special uh, rules in capital cases and suggested that you should need for votes to issue a stay of execution as you do to grant cert. Uh, I think I'll stop uh, there and ask for your thoughts, uh, Jamal Green, about the commission's consideration of questions involving the shadow docket and uh, uh, capital cases. Sure, and the the shadow docket
2: um, being these largely emergency um, petitions that are not on the merits but might um, involve uh, requests for stays of lower court decisions, or stays of of um, political decisions, or, or the lifting of those um, of those lower court stays, and the fact that the court um, seems to be handling more of these uh, types of orders in recent years, and does so quickly without reason, decision, and then and then subsequently sometimes relies on them, um, even though they're not necessarily. I'm fully briefed. Uh, I, I agree with those critics who uh, who worry about this practice. Um, I, I disagree that this is something that is easily amenable to uh, intervention um, from some other body. I, I don't think it's in the court's interest to um, pursue large chunks of its docket in this way um, or important cases in this way. and. And so I, I I think my 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 hope and my but also my expectation is that the shadow docket problem is sort of unsustainable for the court itself, um, and, uh, and 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 may not necessarily be the long term problem that it may appear to be right now. Uh, I do think there are particular aspects of it that that are amenable to to being addressed. One of them you named, which is. the the sort of courtesy fifth problem, which is that in in a capital case, uh, someone uh, uh, can get cert granted in their case with just four votes, uh, but in order to stay their execution, you need five votes. And it's been typically the practice of the court to grant that fifth. Um, If they grant cert, they're not gonna execute someone and then moot the case um, in that way. Uh, But that that has not always been um, the, the practice. Uh, I, I think that's something the court should ref- reform on its own. Um, uh, a, a, and I think if they didn't reform it on its own, that is probably something that Congress could could in fact respond to in some way. Uh, but, but other than those kinds of discrete issues, I, I, I really tend to think this is something about the court's own internal management that I do think raises problems. But but I I think in the grand scheme of things, if we think about the various problems with the court, I would rank the that problem as a relatively minor one.
0: Michael, your thoughts on the possible proposed reforms of the shadow docket and the way the court deals with capital cases, and might any of them productively be adopted voluntarily by the justices rather than imposed by Congress?
1: I'm not sure the shadow docket is a problem at all. Um... You know, sometimes cases come up that are emergencies. District courts, you know, often enjoin statutes or intervene in situations, you know, on the drop of a hat with a couple of days. And maybe the lawyers talk to them on the phone and it's very casual and, and with an, and sometimes, you know, enormous, uh, impact. Uh, I don't see why if district judges do this, you know, why the Supreme Court when, when an emergency comes up you know there's some cases that if you don't act on them immediately they're you know the all the damage whichever way it is not granting or granting relief all the damage uh, will be done uh, and so uh, I, I obviously it'd be better if every case and every court was a subject of full deliberation and thoughtful reasoning and so forth but uh, sometimes the world moves very fast and and I don't understand why it's a problem that the Supreme Court responds I it is I don't think there's any argument that the case that the court has been hasty in the sense that the cases that they where they have exercised this uh, this kind of jurisdiction have been poorly have not been emergencies i think they all have been now on the capital the capital punishment um uh stay issue i, I both uh, i think that there's much more uh uh of a problem there it is very strange uh to grant cert and then not uh not uh stay the execution uh so that the court can decide the case. I uh, like Jamal, though. I'm inclined just to leave that to the court. It hasn't doesn't happen very often. I have. We we might want to hazard a guess as to what's going on when that takes place. And my guess, perhaps uninformed guess, is it's when the other five justices know that that the merits are not really in doubt, and so uh, if. I mean that there are justices who take the position. The judge, justice for whom I clerked took the position that every uh, capital punishment case, a capital punishment is simply unconstitutional in every case. Well, that is not the law. Supreme Court's never adopted that. And if that's the way you get, you count to four on the basis of some of those justices taking that position, that's not going to prevail. And I guess I can understand why the other five say, look, if that's all there is to this case, this we might as well just eliminate it because it's not really a real case.
0: Well, the last category of reforms that the commission identified involve uh, the selection of cases and also judicial ethics. The commission noted that the court employs rough criteria about when to grant cert. And identified a range of proposals that might regularize case selection uh, from hiring career staff attorneys to asking amici or friends of the court to uh, get more involved to expanding the role of federal court of appeals in certifying cases. And on judicial ethics, the commission noted that uh, justices are the only federal judges not bound by the code of ethics and uh Noted proposals ranging from the court adopting an internal code of conduct, uh, which would also provide for internal discipline, to uh, regularizing the standards for recusal. Uh, Jamal, thoughts on any of those proposals?
2: Sure. So when it, when we when we talk about the certiorari and choosing their own cases, uh, my my own proposal go, goes after this as a as a as an issue with the court. But I, but I will say that i think that i think it's an issue insofar as consistent with my other views individual members of the court have way too much power right so if you are someone who is not elected who has life tenure um who is one of only nine and you also have a major role in deciding your own docket which means that you act proactively uh, and not just reactively which was which historically has been thought. This is how you hem in courts if they're reactive institutions. But if you if you get to pick whatever cases you want and you have all those other features, uh, then I think that's a problem for your power. Uh, I think if you sort of solve some of the other um, issues with the court's power, in, in term, including with term limits and and with um, and with uh, how how, how, the, the, how small the court is and the fact that every justice is involved in every case, so they don't sit in panels. I would not be nearly as worried about case selection as such. It's not unusual um, for courts to largely pick their own cases, especially if they're uh, apex courts. Uh, I honestly don't think the court does an especially bad job of picking its own cases. Um, I, I think it's more of a structural problem with the court's power. And, and there's, there's a lot of the proposals um, the, are, seem um, more radical than the problem uh, calls for I, I do like the idea of revitalizing um, certification or, or reinvigorating certification from the courts of appeals on questions to the Supreme Court because I do think the lower courts often have um, be- better insight and in some ways more often more p- less partisan insight into um, what makes for a for a good uh, a good case um, as to um, as to ethics and the code of conduct here again I, I don't see any Particularly good reason why the Supreme Court, Supreme Court justices should not be covered by um, the existing code of judicial conduct, um, other than a kind of abstract concern with with, with separation of powers and, and 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 who can enforce it and those kinds of things that I, I'm not as moved by as others. So I, I think it seems to it makes sense to me that they would be covered by a code of conduct. Uh, but I, but again I think the stakes here are, are much lower than they are with respect to a number of the other issues the commission is dealing with uh, we can all you know debate whether this justice or that you know took took too big of a book advance or took a trip that someone didn't want them to take but uh, but i'm i'm not uh, I'm not that animated by this issue or, or worried that um, we have a corrupt Supreme Court, or, or something along those lines. Um, uh, so, I, again, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure about the stakes, but, but it does seem to me to make sense that they be covered by the same code that other judges are covered by.
0: Uh, Michael, your thoughts on those two final uh, questions of uh, case selection and, and judicial ethics?
1: So, ethics first. I think we should distinguish between whether they should be governed by the same rules and what kind of institutions there are to enforce those rules. Uh, I'm more or less open to their being covered by the same rules. The rules are not unreasonable or draconian. Uh, And and the court has itself said it's voluntarily uh, adopted them. So in a sense, I think that may be uncontroversial. The question is whether some outside body can can hold them accountable for that, and I think that would probably mean, you know, forcing a recusal in a particular case. That is, if if exercised responsibly and nonpartisanly, and so forth, maybe that would be fine. But we have no, you know, who's guarding the guardians? Well, then we're going to want to look at them, and there, and there has been a practice, especially in the last uh, decade of weaponizing ethics against people because you're just so because what they did on the merits is just so terrible i mean they're prominent lawyers who who have to defend their licenses at their state bars because of of positions that they have taken uh, in cases and you know there have been some instances on the supreme court where um, a justice, you know, expresses an opinion, you know, is talking to a, like a student group and tosses off something that's interpreted as expressing an opinion on a case. Uh, I could easily, they don't, I think, I mean, this happened to Justice Ginsburg. It happened to uh, Justice Scalia. Uh, you could easily imagine, you know, some interest group, uh, bringing an ethics claim and, you know, it's just, if we're going to have, at some point, you have to have an institution that is final and where no other institution can interfere with it, with its operation. And uh, that's, uh, I think, putting in some kind of an ethics authority over the, the Supreme Court would is, is too much of an opportunity for mischief now case selection i don't even know what's the problem I mean, there's a legitimate claim that they're not taking enough cases a lot of appellate lawyers especially those filing uh, petitions for cert uh i think that i i have a petition for cert pending i think they ought to expand the number of cases so that they can include mine um i'm all for that uh having a professional staff professional staffs tend to develop their own agendas they become very adept at, at manipulating anybody who saw the bbc series yes minister knows what the what i'm talking about that's now i'm showing my age that was a long time ago uh, i don't think i think actually the the current system of law clerks works really well uh, i don't think there's a problem
0: Thank you for that. And thank you for recommending the uh, brilliant Yes Minister, which is well worth checking out. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this excellent discussion. If the Commission did nothing else, it thoughtfully identified a range of proposals that we could then run through on this podcast and get your reactions to. And I'd like to ask each of you what you thought broadly of the way the Commission approached its interim findings or discussion points. And how you think it might most productively structure its final report, which is due in November. Jamal. Well, I I'm not quite sure what
2: to make of the of the interim findings. Um they're 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 long. Um I think if for non-experts they're they're unreadable. Um uh and so and I don't necessarily this is not really a criticism of the commission insofar as the, the, those draft the draft findings seem to be directed at other commissioners, and they're just trying to be as transparent about their internal deliberations as possible. Uh, I don't really have a problem with that, but I do think the final report will need to be slicker. Um, and and I don't mean that in the in the pejorative marketing sense, but just um, with uh, a nice executive summary and uh, and generous use of, of appendices for more technical information. And so forth, or, or else the the, the purpose, the, the I think most constructive purpose behind the commission, which is to prompt genuine conversation, is going to be lost uh, if only um, people like me and you and Michael uh, are able to to get through it. Uh, and so I, I think that's going to be the the challenge for them.
0: Thank you for that, Michael. Your thought on the interim findings and how the commission might most productively structure its final report.
1: Well, I I totally agree with what Jamal said about. Uh, the lack of readability uh I, I i don't know that we should be very concerned because my understanding is that this has not been digested by the whole commission that what has been r- released is basically they broke up into subcommittees and and that this is I just cobbling together their work and that no and that it hasn't been actually digested by the whole uh, commission. So in addition to what Jamal was saying about readability and and so forth, uh, they have an opportunity to do what President Biden asked them to do, which is to be a bipartisan commission, you know, to not to be, you know, to put their, you know, partisan um, accesses aside. And, you know, there, there there are passages in this that, you know, are, are quite tendentious. What they ought to do is just root them out. They ought to prepare a document that's really, uh, uh, speaking to the American people, uh, and a, um, and a, and a measured tone that's kind of, this is an opportunity for a, a national civics lesson and that they ought to take it rather than using every opportunity to score points against the political side that they don't agree with.
0: Thank you very much for that. And the National Constitution Center will play its crucial role in that national civics lesson by convening uh, you, uh, Jamal and Michael and the members of the Constitution Drafting Project, to come together as soon as possible to see if you can agree on a draft term limits amendment and on any other possible amendments to the United States Constitution. Until then, thank you both as always for teaching We the People listeners and spreading much light with your thoughtful insights. Uh, Jamal Green, Michael McConnell, thank you so much for joining.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by David Stotts. Research was provided by Michael Esposito, Chase Hansen, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of civil and illuminating constitutional debate. And always remember, friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the devotion to lifelong learning of people like you around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership. Or give a donation of any amount, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, or more. To support our work at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.